have you found yourself saying, is it just me? I, I, wait, we're all supposed to say what now? What's that word mean? Um, wait, wait, hold it. We're all supposed to accept that men can get pregnant now? And you feel alone? I know I've had that experience a lot of times. Um, and that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the parasitic mind, this parasite that has been intentionally injected into us and whether or not the West will stand or not. And we are becoming dangerously close to losing what made the West the West and indeed losing the freedoms of the West. The guest I have for you today is one of my favorite people. I love the way he thinks. His name is Gad Sad. Um, he's an evolutionary behavioral scientist. He's also the host of the, the Sad Truth. That's with two A's. And the author of the new book, The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. He is a guy who, and he'll explain this, is a, is a guy really that, um, a behavioral scientist, but he is a, a professor at mar- of marketing. So how does our animalistic side, the, the root of who we all are, affect our choices? And how has that been used against us? And what can we do to deprogram and come back to a place to where the truth actually matters? Fascinating and perhaps someday a historic conversation with Gad Sad. Gadfather, how are you? How are you, sir? So good to be back. <laughs> yeah, good, good to talk to you again. Thank you. Listen, before we start, last time you shook me to the bones because you taught the professor of marketing something, which is always don't say my forthcoming book, but say the parasitic mind, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let me show you who's the marketing guru. <laughs> Edible cookies. That's, that's fantastic. And the drink. <laughs> and the book in the background. <laughs> Who's the marketing guru now? <laughs> so, Gad, I want to talk to you because you are a, a, a marketing guy that's a, a evolutionary biologist. So you look at marketing uh, and why it works and uh, why things sell, why things are accepted, right? Can you explain yeah. that uh, just a little? Evolutionary psychologist, not evolutionary biologist. I apply oh, evolutionary biology. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Okay, so can you explain that? What does that job entail usually? So most people who study consumer behavior scientifically don't look at the biological underpinnings that drive our consumatory nature. So they assume that everything is due to socialization, to our parents, to advertising, to our peers. Now, all these things are, of course, important, important in shaping our consumption. But of course, our biology also affects our consumption. Why we prefer fatty foods to celery, while why men are more likely to consume hardcore pornography than women, why women are more likely to consume romance novels. A lot of the things that we do as consumers 
is really a vestige of our evolutionary history. And so what I do is I look at these evolutionary underpinnings and I study them in a modern arena. So there have been several people that have done this. And in my opinion, they they use their power for evil as opposed to good. Uh, Bernays is is one of those guys that I think um, has I mean, he changed everything, everything. Um, We eat breakfast, you know, eggs, bacon and toast because of him. Um, When you are looking at this. Were you, would you would you use this to help marketers market? Is that right? So it's a good question. Look, uh, studying physics can land us on the moon, but studying physics can also result in us dropping bombs in, on Japan. Right. Correct. Yeah. So so it's just a tool which can be channeled either for good or evil. So the study of marketing is really the study of persuasion. So Mm -hmm. I could use marketing techniques to hopefully convince you to not lead a sedentary lifestyle, or I could use marketing to sell you BS. In my case, I'm not really so much interested in the application of the work more than actually understanding what makes people tick the way that subsequently other people use it it's it's for them to decide so i i I wanted to set this up because we are in a place now where um uh people who study uh behavioral science and and study marketing have really shaped uh many things that are going on right now they are Actively, Cass Sunstein is one of them, actively yeah. engaged in moving us uh, towards uh, a, an illusion of freedom of, of choice or free will. Would you agree with that? Yeah. But by the way, Sunstein and his colleague, Richard Thaler, in their book, Nudge, Richard Thaler was my professor at Cornell. Mm. He subsequently won the Nobel Prize. So I'm very familiar with their work. Uh, look, again, it's the same thing, right? Uh, you, you can either use these behavioral principles for good or for evil, but you're right that in today's political realities, and given the fact that most people are cognitive misers, then they become very easy to manipulate, right? Right. And especially now with social media, uh, I mean, just the algorithms are smarter than the average uh, bear, smarter than all of us, really. Um, and they know us better than us. And all of the stuff that you research, a lot of that stuff is used to make those algorithms, correct? Absolutely. So let, let's look how, for example, we would use evolutionary theory to study political choices, right? Okay. So I, I wrote an article, uh, I think it was in 2003, a, a scientific article, where I argued that Contrary to what we might think, when people choose a candidate, let's say a presidential candidate, they don't sit there and, you know, uh, navigate through all of the issues. Rather, they use simplifying heuristics to make a decision. Who's taller? Who looks more presidential? Who has a more brawny face? And the reason for that, again, is because most people are cognitive misers. By the way, this is exactly what explains why so many people have a a a repulsion or what I call an aesthetic injury against Donald Trump. It's not because they don't agree with his policies necessarily. It's because he repulses them. So they use these emotional based shortcuts to form an opinion when in reality they should be looking at what do each of these two platforms represent and who do I align with best? They don't do that. 
So when you're looking at um, Joe Biden, what do people see? He's a nice guy. He is a sweet man. Uh, he, he's going to bring back class to the presidential office. Uh, he's not going, be, going to be as cantankerous and brazen as Donald Trump. And I, I don't know if we, you and I have discussed this in the past. Many of my you know, good friends who are otherwise you know, very sophisticated thinkers, they wouldn't be able to enunciate to you a very specific policy that they disagree with Trump. It's just that he hits them in the stomach. He disgusts me. Whereas Barack Obama, my God, he is so magisterial, right? Mm -hmm. This is what I call, assume for a second, this is the cork of a wine bottle, okay? There's an expression in Arabic that says, getting drunk at simply smelling the cork of the wine bottle. I don't need to, to actually drink the wine. I just get drunk at this. That's what people are doing. My God, he is so magisterial he's majestic he is tall he's lanky he has a radiant smile trump on the other hand is vulgar he's brazen he's combative that's how people make decisions which is quite regrettable because you would think they would spend a lot more cognitive effort to make decisions but they don't so let, let me read something um let me read something to you i found just the other day i, I think you'll find it really interesting especially uh, when you uh, know who wrote it. Um, yeah, I found this I found this uh, the other day and I I think it couldn't what we're going through right now couldn't be expressed any better than this. At the beginning, they knew the people who were uh, who are taking our country apart and our, our Western way of life. At the beginning, they knew they could never raise their treason to any respectable magnitude by any name which implies violation of law. They knew their people possessed as much moral sense, as much devotion to law and order, as much pride in and reverence for the history and government of their common country as any other civilized and patriotic people. They knew they could make no advancement directly into the teeth of these strong and noble sentiments. Accordingly, they commenced by an insidious debauching of the public mind. They invented an ingenious sophism, which, if conceded, was followed by perfectly logical steps through all the incidents to complete the destruction of the Republic. With the rebellion thus sugarcoated, they have been drugging the public mind for their their uh, uh, for their goals for more than 30 years. And until at length, they have brought many good men and a willingness to take up now arms against the government. That was who said this? Abraham Lincoln. Okay, wow. Um, Quite a prescient fellow. Yeah. Uh, and, And I think many people feel the same way. And it's weird because I think each side feels that way about the other. Um, that somehow or another, we've all been hypnotized. But I contend that those who have now uh, fallen in line with Marxism and, uh, and the fact that America and the West is systematically racist and you're born a racist, all of this stuff, I believe that's the insidious uh, uh, lie but it seems to be working. Can you, right. can you tell me why it works? 
Well, that's, I mean, in a sense, that's the, you're describing my, my book really well, The Parasitic Mind. Because, uh, <laughs> is, that, is that the parasitic mind right behind you? Wow. Huh. <laughs> uh, because, look, what I, what I basically say in The Parasitic Mind is that in the same way that all sorts of animals can be parasitized by actual brain worms. Uh, you know, uh, a mouse can be parasitized by Toxoplasma gondii, causing it to no longer be afraid of a cat, but rather being sexually attracted to the cat's urine. Well, I argue that there are a set of idea pathogens that parasitize our minds, leading us to the abyss of infinite lunacy. Now, where do these idea pathogens come from? They all stem from, regrettably, I say, because I'm a professor, they all stem from the university ecosystem. It takes intellectuals to come up with really dumb ideas. <laughs> and so for 40, 50 years now, we have seen a constant and pervasive attack on our reasons, on our edifices of reason, which have resulted in, a, in the downstream effects that we are seeing today in our public discourse. If you'd like, I can discuss some of these idea pathogens. Yeah, I, I, I want to, because that's, I mean, that is what the parasitic mind is about. And I really want to understand it. And then I want to know, how do you, how do you talk to people about truth and common yeah. sense when it's all gone? So yeah. let's start with the problem and, and the yeah. concept. And then we'll get the yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so here, let me start with the granddaddy of all uh, idea pathogens. So postmodernism is really the 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 epitome of a of intellectual terrorism because what it basically says is that there are no objective truths. Everything is shackled by our sub sub subjectivity, by our personal biases. You can imagine how anti-scientific that is because scientists wake up in the morning thinking that they're gonna go to work to try to uncover truths. Now, truths can change, right? What we thought was tr uh, true in science 300 years ago may no longer be true today, but we do operate under the premise that there is a truth to be discovered. Postmodernism destroys that. There is no truth. There's only my truth. There's only my lived experience. So it's a form of intellectual nihilism. I call it intellectual terrorism. So imagine if you teach students for 30, 40, 50 years this kind of nonsense. That's not, you're not really teaching them critical thinking too well, right? The scientific method is exactly what liberated us from these types of shackles. It's what liberated us from our personal identities. There is no Lebanese Jewish way of knowing. There is no Arkansas way of knowing. There is no indigenous way of knowing. There's only the scientific method. We all meet at the scientific method on equal footing. So you eradicate the scientific method, you introduce postmodernism, you have toxic masculinity, you have white supremacy, you have cultural relativism, you have militant feminism. This is why I call it death of the West by a thousand cuts. No single idea pathogen is enough to destroy our society, but put them all together and you start having complete lunacy. All right, I'm gonna take a break. Tell you about Built Bars. Built Bars are, my wife is always, she's always right. And I don't know why I fight her, I just do. But she's always like, you gotta try this. And it always ends in something that's good for me. And I hate everything that, you do not get a body like this without working hard. And not listening to your wife. Um, so she's been eating Built Bars for a while. They're protein bars. But protein bars always taste like dog crap. No. Dog crap that has been just scraped across the top of a doormat. Built Bar is nothing like that. And I only ate them because she had left the house. And I was a little rumbly in my tumbly. And it was the only thing to eat. And so I tried it. 
she came home and I'm like, these are fantastic. She's like, really genius. Built Bar, really, really good. They are uh, high in protein. They are low in, in fat and calories. They have all the stuff that's good for you that I never usually care about. The best thing about them is it's real chocolate. It's like a candy bar, but 130 calories. Are you kidding me? Low carbs. Use the promo code Beck. Go to BuiltBar.com. Use the promo code Beck. You get $10 off your first order. Their cookies and cream, their mint chocolate is unbelievable. All of it. I haven't had a bad one yet. Use the promo code Beck, BuiltBar.com. When you're looking at things, let's just take critical race theory. Sure. Um, Gad, you're telling me that white people haven't benefited from this society that there's not you walk in for a job a black man walks in for a job you don't think that there's been bias with that guy's going to get the job whether they know it or not they may all claim they're not racist but please gad <laughs> what what you're what you're enunciating there is exactly the allure of many of these idea pathogens because they start off with a kernel of truth they start off with a noble cause but then when taken to extreme they become idea pathogens right so let so we could talk about critical race theory but let me just uh, let me just shift to say mm-hmm. militant feminism mm-hmm. Equity feminism is the idea that men and women should be equal under the law. Well, any reasonable person would say, yeah, of course I support that. I'm an equity feminist. The problem with militant feminism is it pushes it further. It then says, in order to remove the sexist status quo, we need to eradicate the possibility that there are innate sex differences, right? Everything is due to a social construction. So in the pursuit of the noble goal of seeking equality under the law, we murder and rape truth. The same thing happens with critical race theory. Yes, of course, there has been at times systemic racism, but to argue that today LeBron James is afraid to leave his house to go to the play the game because he is being hunted by racist cops is a slight exaggeration. <laughs> so, we, so, so we, we, so we could pursue noble goals while always adhering to truth. I can chew gum and walk at the same time. But all these idea pathogens don't draw that distinction. They they argue from a consequentialist perspective, if we murder truth in the service of our social justice, screw truth. So do have all did all of these start, for instance, political correctness. I have a daughter who has cerebral palsy. I remember when they were like handy capable. And I thought that was the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Because if you call handicapable in a generation, that word is going to mean the same thing as handicapped. You know what I mean? Right. You, you just need different help uh, to do different things. So it's just it's such a ridiculous concept to me. But what sold me uh, not to become a politically correct person, but to go, you know what? I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings sure. is. If it does make the difference with somebody, I, I don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. And I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to stand there and preach to a special Olympian. No, you're very different. That's ridiculous. Right. You know what I mean? Right. So is it though they always start with the kernel of truth and compassion? You got it, right? So 
of course we should all work to be kind and respectful to each other and to the extent that language is dynamic and organic and changes and a word that was acceptable 40 years ago is no longer acceptable then we adjust accordingly again the problem is the overreach so the thought police then comes up every two seconds with new rules of linguistic engagement right because it's a it's a form of power play right it keeps me unstable i don't know which word i should use for example the word oriental to describe someone who came from the orient was perfectly okay a couple of generations ago now you don't say oriental you say asian well wait a second i'm asian lebanon is from the continent of asia why is why has asian been usurped by people from the far east so you see that there is a vagary a haphazardness to a lot of these politically correct terms by the way uh, i analogize political correctness to the sting of the spider wasp. So the spider wasp stings a spider, rendering it zombified. It then, you know, carries it to the burrow and it lays an egg on the alive spider so that the as the egg hatches, it eats the spider in vivo. Well, political correctness is the spider's sting. It's, it stullifies us. It, it leads us to the abyss of infinite lunacy quietly and in a docile manner. It's the exact same mechanism. So it, I am amazed at how the left, I think what the left has done to the West I believe is evil, um, but uh, and I don't use that word lightly. I think anything that is destroying man's freedom and man's ability to clearly think is is pretty evil. But it, it is also in the same regard, unbelievably beautiful. It, yeah. it they have they have put this thing together to destroy the West, where I think in a hundred years from now when it all is exposed and we really know how it was done it will be studied for a long time on how to cripple half of the world well that but that's why so my when i analogize between you know parasites and idea pathogens or when i talk about these idea pathogens as mind viruses i'm not just sort of being you know poetically uh, flowery in my language it's precisely for what you just said, right? A virus, an actual virus, is a beautiful thing, right? It has the circuitry, the machinery mm -hmm. to be able to find a way to enter your cell so that it could then use your machinery to replicate itself. It's gorgeous. I mean, in terms of the creation of a virus, it is beautiful. So you're exactly right. These idea pathogens are wonderful because they could, as I said, lead me quietly to the abyss of infinite lunacy while I'm feeling proud about my progressive nature. It's gorgeous, but it is tragic. I talked to um, a woman who she was 16 years old when she first started saving Jews in Poland. Um, I took my family over uh, to Auschwitz uh, probably about 10 years ago. And I said, I believe these days are coming back and we have to know who we are as a family and what we stand for as a family. And at the end of the day, we met with one of the righteous among the nations and she was 16 years old. Now she was in, her, I think, her 90s uh, when we spoke to her. She was so sweet, so kind. And I said to her at the end, how do you water the tree of righteousness? And she said something that I'm only really now fully understanding. 
She looked at me and she said, you misunderstand. The righteous didn't suddenly become righteous. We just refused to go over the cliff with the rest of humanity. Right. Okay. So, so my abyss is kind of an apt metaphor. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, how, how, how do we get, how, is this any different than what happened in the Soviet Union? What happened in, um, in Nazi Germany? Is this more elegant or is this what happened to, because I've always wondered, how do you get Germans to do that? How do you get people right. to believe that? Now well, I so think I understand. Question, yeah, yeah. I mean, your question is, are human minds uh, ready to be parasitized by bad ideas? And this is certainly not something that is new to today's era. As you said, uh, look, in, 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 uh, in the Soviet Union, Lysenkoism was, are you familiar with that term? Do you know what that is? No, Lysenkoed? So Lysenkoism, Lysenko was a geneticist who actually argued against the, you know, the, the law of genetics, the, you know, the established Mendelian laws of genetics, mm -hmm. because he thought that his framework for how genes are passed on and so on uh, were had to be more in line with Marxism. And so <laughs> he adjusted science to fit his ideology which resulted in the great famines that led to you oh. know, 20, 30 million people huh. dying, right? So, so it's not that today the, the parasitic ideas that we're seeing is something novel in the fact that humans can have minds that are parasitized. What is unique about today's you know, zeitgeist is that we thought we had developed the right weaponry to no longer succumb to these. We thought that the scientific method, the scientific uh, you know, renaissance, the, the enlightenment had resolved these things. And so that's why today we live in this anomalous society called the West. But regrettably, no, you always have to defend this beautiful thing that we've created in the West because our capacity to be parasitized is kind of the default value. There's always the next charlatan who's going to come along to try to play around with my circuitry. So, Gad, what are the what are the conditions that are required to um, to get people ready for instance you know you just said we, we thought we had this we had the scientific method and i immediately thought there was no one more scientific than germany in the late 1800s you know up, up until the 1940s they had that as i mean they were teaching the world um so it was is that arrogance is it a is it a reliance on science without balancing something else? What what is the so each each era will have a different set of factors that result in these parasitic ideas to flour flourishing. Uh, if we're talking about today's era, you have basically 40, 50 years of leftist professors who were slowly erasing human nature slowly so, right so for example the idea that biology so this is my area of research the idea that we should use evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology to study human nature is actually quite heretical in the social sciences because most social scientists yeah exactly i i, I like your reaction most social scientists who are social constructivists, meaning everything is due to a social construction, believe that, sure, biology explains the behavior of the mosquito and the zebra and your dog, 
But don't you dare say, Dr. Saad, that consumers are driven by biology. That's vulgar. What do you mean? I transcend my biology, right? So but now again, now you might say, well, how could they be this idiotic? Aren't they supposed to be professors? Again, it starts from a noble place. And let me explain how. Because evolutionary theory has been misused by a whole bunch of nefarious folks throughout the years. The Nazis used it to argue, hey, there's a struggle between the races. It's a Darwinian struggle. Mm-hmm. We won. So who cares if we kill the Jews? Uh, eugenicists said, hey, you know, we don't want to have gays around. So if we sterilize them, we get rid of the of gay gene. What's wrong with that? Mm-hmm. Now, of course, that has nothing to do with evolutionary theory. But because all of these folks misappropriated evolutionary theory, these social scientists, these progressive, noble social scientists said, well, let's create a new understanding of the human condition, where we remove biology. So which goes back to my earlier point, in the pursuit of noble causes, you should never murder and rape truth. Your first goal as an academic is to stay true to truth. And then you worry about activism and social goals. But that's the problem with the humanities and the social sciences. They're first ideological activists, second pursuers of truth. That should never be the case. So it would... When Nietzsche said God is dead, that wasn't a celebratory statement. That was a warning. Isn't he warning in a way about biological uh, evolution? I mean, we need as a people, we need something bigger than us. And if it's not that, it'll be something else. Um, And isn't that a biological need in us? Right. So you. You're right that I think the default value of humans is to believe in a higher power. And I say this, as you know, I'm Jewish, but I'm also an atheist. Uh, I recognize as an evolutionist that you are never going to eradicate uh, the religious impulse from us. It is part of us. Now, we can argue whether man created God or whether God exists outside of man. But the religious impulse is something that is within us. And there are several reasons. Uh, by the way, evolutionary scientists study why religion evolved. In other words, you could study why religion exists as an evolutionary phenomenon. So, right. I mean, so, I get I, I am a deeply religious person. I deeply believe in, in God. But I have to tell sure. you. If I wake up in the coffin and there's nothing but dirt for all eternity and darkness, it made me a better person. I know right. I know the switches that it throws in me. Um, and and that's fine. There's you know what I mean? Right. Either way, actually, it's fine. That's a that's a common uh, you know, position that people take where they say, look, if if all you get are benefits in in believing and being a religious believer, then why not do it? Right. But I mean, that goes back really to Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher who really provided Pascal's wager. Right. Where he basically said, look, God could exist or God could not exist. I could believe or I could not believe. So it's a two by two matrix. And in every single one of those cells, it makes more sense to believe than not believe. So just believe. So I. <laughs> I buy that argument. It's a, it's a nice game theoretic argument. But here's the thing. If you are a truth purist, yes. then you're not convinced by that. Because then in my case, I'm going to say, even if religion offers me a functionally beneficial value, 
I'm not going to believe it unless you can prove to me that it's true. In no. other words, I'm not going to be consequentialist about my belief in religion. You follow what I mean? So, yeah. So I, I will tell you that when I started searching whether God exists or not, I did prove enough of it to me, but I can't prove right. anything. You know what I mean? Sure. You can't prove that he doesn't exist. You can't prove that he does exist. So it, it's a it's a personal <clears throat> thing. I'm not I'm not like I don't really buy into any of this crap, but I'm going to believe. I don't think that works right. but I, I was just using that as an example of yeah. of you know, for instance why fear sells why every election yeah. you have to be afraid um because fear is much more powerful because we because we coalesce around something that protects us from that right exactly and, and by the way that's that's one of the reasons that's one of the evolutionary arguments for religion so in in one of my earlier books the consuming instinct i offer an evolutionary al- analysis of for kosher laws for specific kosher laws right so one one possibility would be to say well you're not allowed to eat certain types of shellfish and stuff because god dictated it mm-hmm. another way if you look at it biologically th- there is a per- there is a pathogen that can be found in some of these foods whereby you can't even tell if if the food has that pathogen or not. All you know is that one day Moshe is walking around in the desert and he either drops dead or not because of the food. Mm-hmm. Well, short of me understanding germ theory and so on, what other way can I attribute causality than to say it must be a divine, you know, an, an edict that yeah. says don't eat this food but there are very clear biological reasons why people would have succumbed to these particular food consumptions but four thousand years ago they didn't know that therefore they put it on the broad shoulders of god so that brings me to um you know i believe that if there is a god he's got to be the greatest mathematician ever because everything is precise. The entire universe falls apart if you're playing math over here one way and math over here another way. It, 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 he's a scientist. If, if he exists, he's the ultimate scientist because it all has to work. Um, but if you're, if you're um, looking at that, your, your um, uh, theory here with, with kosher, I, ex- I accept that that it could be the way that it all happened, but that just goes to universal truths, that there are things that are true. Whether you put a uh, sports car cover over that engine or you put a bus cover over that engine, it, the engine still is working the same. So, Which, which speaks... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, your point. So, so this is... The, the problem is we've erased the big truths we've erased that that the universe is mathematical and it works the same way for everyone not only have we erased specific truths we've we've erased what what i call the epistemology of truth right the scientific method is what allows me to adjudicate between competing hypotheses, right? There's a clear way for, if I wanna know whether men on average are taller than women, there is a way that I can collect data to absolutely confirm this one way or the other, right? I don't have to rub crystals, I don't have to sit under a pyramid, I don't have to look at revealed truth. There is a way for me to understand the statistical regularities of the world. Well, what postmodernism does, to go back to that earlier point, is it removes that epistemology. It says that, why are you bothering looking for universal truths? There are no universal truths. Everything is subjective. So again, you could imagine how 
intellectually terroristic that is, right? Because what's the point of getting out of bed in the morning for me if there are no universal truths for me to study, right? Everything is random then, right? So that, that that's precisely why I use the terms idea pathogens. So take, for example, transgender activism. You and I can probably agree, I'm sure if I put the words in your mouth, that you know we're 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 very kind, loving people. We don't want to see any bigotry towards no, transgender people. None. But I don't want my child to be taught in school that sometimes boys menstruate and sometimes girls menstruate. Now that again speaks to my earlier point, which is in the pursuit of protecting transgender people from bigotry, I don't have to sell bullshit. I don't have to murder truth in the service of that earlier laudable goal. That's the problem with all of these idea pathogens. Does that happen, Gad, though? Was that happening 20 years ago where they were murdering truth? Or is it a slow creep to where you need to get the public to a certain place before you can then just say? It has been a slow creep. First, it began in academia. You refine the, men, the mind virus for several generations. You inculcate it in many generations of students so that these students then become the leaders of our HR departments. They become our prime ministers in Canada. They become the Democratic Party in the US. They become the diversity officers in every organization. You know, that didn't happen by magic. It's a very slow burn. It's sort of the old parable of the boiling frog, right? If you put the frog in the pot and you slowly raise the the heat below a just noticeable difference, the frog is frolicking all along, right? That's what's happening with the West. Death by a thousand cuts slowly, slowly chipping at the edifice of reason. And then one day we end up in complete nihilism. So that someone like, was it Julian Castro, when he was talking about, well, we want to give abortions to both men and women and so on. I mean, is it possible that in the 21st century, a leading presidential candidate of the Democratic Party is uttering such nonsense? Could we not support the right of transgender people without uttering such garbage? Can we? Well... If people read my book and get the vaccine, <laughs> the parasitic mind is going to drive me straight to Stockholm for the Nobel Prize. So um, we're looking at uh, all of these crazy things. Um, and I think people hear things like that and they blow it off because that's crazy. And um, they can't possibly mean that or, uh, you know, it's just so crazy. Nobody's going to believe it. And then all of a sudden you wake up in a world where you're looking around going, am, am I the only one that doesn't believe that? Glenn, just for you to know, over the past, I don't know, five to 10 years since I've become a lot more vocal on many of these issues because of social media and so on, I've always been fighting these idea pathogens, but now social media offers me, you know, a much bigger, bigger platform to do it. I've received innumerable emails exactly speaking to your point, which is some student, some professor, some, some parent of a student writes to me unable to make sense of the world right they they don't know which is and and basically i'm sort of the the anchor for them right mm -hmm. thank you so much dr Saad. by listening to you i still feel as if i am grasping reality 
well, why is it that we're here? Like, why is it that you need me to tell you, as I did with the Canadian Senate when I appeared in front of them to testify about the transgender stuff, that, hey, Canadian senators, no, really, trust me, I'm an evolutionary psychologist. There is such a thing as male and female. In the 21st century, you need a fancy smancy professor to come to you to tell you that a sexually reproducing species has this thing called male and female. And then one of the senators upon hearing my testimony points to me, you could all watch it, it's the, the testimony is available, and he says, you are pro-genocide, sir, you are pro-genocide. And then I say to him, well, you better be careful because it might not be a good look to be telling someone who escaped execution in Lebanon that he is pro-genocide. But that's the lunacy that we've reached. Can, can you tell me, um, do, do these people that are preaching this let's say just militant feminism i see them hanging out with really hardcore uh islamists not not a muslim an islamist yeah and i'm like you are the first person to be killed or contained you know <laughs> if the islamist gets their way how how does that work in people's brains Look, uh, you, you may or may not know the name Leon Festinger. He was the pioneer of the theory of cognitive dissonance. These folks have completely fractured diseased minds of cognitive dissonance mush, right? I mean, think about there's a group called Queers for Palestine. What the hell are you talking about? Do you know what happens to LGBTQ people in Palestine? If you really want to be queers for something be queers for tel aviv because tel aviv has one of the most vibrant lgbtq communities right. but that's the kind of fractured minds they have because they have bought into the idea pathogen that the poor palestinians are the oppressed and the evil zionist jews are the oppressors it's part of the currency of victimology poker but doesn't the your people are throwing gays off of the roof of a building in Iran mean anything? <laughs> no, those people, so I'm, I'm now answering on their behalf. They would say, no, but they're not practicing true Islam. They are, it's a, some grotesque, uh, you know, uh, cancerous version of Islam, just like socialism, right? If you show people 100 places where socialism has been tried and it has failed, what do they always come back with? But bruh, that wasn't true socialism. If only now AOC institutes true socialism, then we will live happily forever more making love on the streets and holding hands. And so what stops us from what, what, why is it, Gad, I don't believe in any of that crap? Somebody else my age. Because you have a functioning brain. <laughs> but what, what makes me different than somebody else my age that has a relatively same kind of life experience? They're completely, what, what is it that the parasite didn't get into me? Right. Well, that, that's, that's the, that's the thousand dollar question. I think it really boils down to whether you are, when it comes to truth, a deontological person or a consequentialist. Let me explain these two systems. A deontological ethical system is there's an absolute truth. It is never okay to lie. That's a deontological statement. 
a consequentialist statement would be it is okay to lie if for example i'm trying to spare someone's feelings so if you want to have a long-standing marriage and your spouse says do i look fat in those jeans maybe lie to him or her because you want to protect their, their right the reality is we're all we're all at times consequentialist yeah. and at times the right but when it comes to the truth with a capital t I propose that you should always be deontological, right? right? I never sacrifice a millimeter of truth in the pursuit of some downstream consequence. So to answer your question, my feeling is that you versus the other guy who is your age who is parasitized is that you are probably deontological when it comes to the capital T truth, and he's not. Uh, one of my mottos is from Immanuel Kant, who I you know, we can get into talk later some other time, but he said, I will... There are many things that I believe that I shall never say, but I shall never say the things that I do not believe. Uh, Boom. That's yeah. exactly it. Yeah. Uh, so th that's that's where I'm at. Um, here we are sitting now at a time where I'm looking at the polls and I, 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 I can't knowing what I know about America. You have a group of people who will not decry or call to stop the violence on the street. They're still calling it peaceful protests while cars are burning behind them. Right. Um, one step after another, uh, uh, America, all the police are racist and we should take your guns and defund the police. And have open borders. Right. And have open and borders. And the Second Amendment. Correct. That will work out well. So yeah. all of the things that are being said are so not un-American in the way it usually is used, but just that, that's, not, um, that's not how America traditionally thinks or what they embrace. And yet I see these poll numbers, and I have come to a place to where either the poll numbers are absolutely wrong or i am absolutely wrong and i am now completely out of step with a new reality in america which is it what, yeah i mean i i wish i knew i'm if you would have told me i mean certainly before COVID hit i would have said it's a cinch that trump right. is going to be reelected. if you told me before the last i mean the first debate the presidential debate not the vp debates i thought that he he he, he didn't he didn't come across as 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 you know as well as he should have yeah. because regrettably most people will use as i mentioned earlier right they smell the cork of the wine bottle and so they will simply say oh he looked so bullying mm -hmm. whereas the other guy looks affable mm -hmm. and somewhat confused and he's he's uncle joe and so i think that might have shifted some of the few remaining undecided towards uncle joey uh so if i were to predict today I'm tilting it slightly towards, uh, I call him avocado brain. I'm tilting mm. it to avocado brain a bit more than to uh, bullying Trump. So we'll, we'll see. I mean, do you, do you have a sense? What, what's your prediction? Oh, I, I, I have no idea. I have absolutely yeah. no idea. Um, but I, I wonder, for instance, I saw the, I, I see Joe Biden and and I don't I don't say this with any malice. I don't mean to be mean at all. He reminds me of my grandfather when we had to take the keys of the car away. Um, he's he's usually there, but there are times when he's not. 
and he's right. just slowing down enough to where grandpa you shouldn't be driving and exactly. right and so i think people have seen that in their own family he's not the man he was even in the primary debates he is yeah. declining quickly then i see a man who has covid is flown to the hospital comes out two days later and he is virile and uh and not 75 how do those two work in the mind <laughs> that, well that amazes me i was just telling my wife we, we'd gone for a coffee early this morning i said you know when i look at trump i'm exhausted just seeing how much energy he has right i'm 20 i'm 20 plus years younger than him i'm about, i'm 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 55, he's what, 74, 75? Yeah. So he's about 20 years on me, and I just can't believe the kind of energy he has. Just think about all the things that he's done in his career. Now, now some will say he's been a scammer, this, mm -hmm. that, but he's a doer. He's done a million things, right? He, sometimes he succeeded, sometimes he's failed, but he's tried many different things in many different arenas. So he's a doer. It's as if he's on Adderall. He can't, he can't stop. He probably sleeps two, three hours a day. He does. I respect that. Then you look at someone like Biden, basically a political parasite, 47 years. What can you put on your CV that's concrete? If, if, if you look at my CV, I can list for you all the papers I've written, all the books I've published, all the talks I've given. There's something very concrete on my CV. What is his CV? Nothing. He's just someone who never said something sufficiently ugly that he was kicked out of politics. And so he was a parasite. And so if only that, I can respect Trump and not Biden. But for many of my highfalutin ivory tower friends, the mere fact that Trump is an aesthetic injury disqualifies him. So but the there's not there's not there's nothing in the average person that sees an an and again, I don't mean this to be mean, but an, a man who is clearly in decline and say, I want one of these two to keep me safe. I'll pick the guy who reminds me of my grandfather when we had to take the keys away. I'm going to I'm going to be hyperbolic and even push it further to those people who would still prefer Biden. Biden could be in an, in an induced coma where he could only flip his eyelids. They would still think that is a much better option than brazen, vulgar, orange man bad. And I know this for a fact because I've tried to engage some of these people, some of whom are otherwise really intelligent people. But there is a complete wall of emotional hysteria that is simply impossible to penetrate. And by the way, I don't mean to imply a lot of times people think, oh, you, you know, I must have posters of Trump in my bedroom that my wife and I use mm -hmm. as foreplay. Right? <laughs> no. I'm you not, don't? Who, I mean, exactly am I the only have, one? <laughs> exactly. So it's not that I'm such a Trump lover. It's that I think I'm sufficiently nonpartisan, especially as a Canadian, to say, yeah. wait a minute. There are very compelling reasons why someone might like Trump. It can't be that 60 plus million people in the last round voted for a complete racist monster. They can't even grant you that. No, he is a monster and only monsters could vote for such a monster. It's all about his monster qualities. It's grotesque. Mm. It's idiotic. It's imbecilic. Let me let me take you here. I, I remember in 2004, I saw a poll that said six or seven percent of America 
believes that we never went to the moon. And at the time, I said, you watch that number. That number is going to be in the teens before you can blink. It's now about 16%. Wow. Um, And we have, I've been trying to explain the difference between a conspiracy theory, which is not bad. It's just been made to sound bad. That's a theory of these people are colluding to do this. But it's a theory. And conspiracy fact. Both sides now are, are in the role of conspirators. You know what I mean? They're, 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 they both have their theories. Donald Trump, you know what? He, he's in bed with, with Russia, and he's done all these things. And the other side is saying, well, no, here's the proof in their own handwriting that it was the other way around. Right. How, how do you cut through the immediate call that something's a conspiracy theory and so therefore must be discredited and say and 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 get to people and say, look, I, 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 I'm not I don't want you to believe me. I don't want you to believe me. Here it is in their own handwriting. How do you bridge that? Yeah, so it's it's tough because so in, in chapter seven of, of the parasitic mind, I propose a way to get at the truth. But to get to that truth, you can't have someone going, la, 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 I don't want to listen to you, right? Mm-hmm. If they start with that position, then no amount of evidence that I can present to you is mm-hmm. ever going to penetrate you because mm-hmm. you've already built up the wall. Mm-hmm. Now, let's assume for a minute that they don't do that, that they actually are open to hearing my evidence. Can I describe the procedure? Please do. Yes, yes, yes. So, so there's a thing that I call nomological networks of cumulative evidence. It's a, it's, it's a lot of fancy words, but let me explain it. So when you think about Charles Darwin, when he tried to, uh, you know, d- develop his theory of uh, evolution, evolution, right? He, he, didn't do, he didn't prove his theory by, you know, running a study with 30 undergraduates at uh, Ohio State, right? What he did instead is over two, three decades, he assiduously collected data from many, many different fields, from paleontology, from ecology, from animal husbandry, from uh, geology, so that when you put all the data together, it became incontrovertible that he was correct. And for 150 years, people have been trying to falsify him to no avail. So I argue for a similar process, and that's what I call nomological networks of cumulative evidence, which means what in, in, in common language? I'm going to drown you in evidence coming from so many different directions that it becomes impossible for you to argue my position away. And let me give a tangible example. If I want to prove to you that toy preferences are biologically based, the the fact that little Johnny likes trucks and guns and little Linda prefers uh, dolls, that's not due to your parents being sexist. It's due to real biological reasons. How would I go about proving that to you? Well, I would put on my hat of the guy who's trying to come up with many lines of evidence and I would present these to you. So let me give you a couple of lines. I could bring you data from different animals. So vervet monkeys, rhesus monkeys, chimpanzees, all of whom exhibit the same sex specific toy preferences in their infants. In other words, an infant vervet monkey boy and an infant vervet vervet monkey girl has the same preferences as human infants. Well, that seems pretty compelling evidence. Mm -hmm. I could give you data 
of children, human children, who are in the pre-socialization stage of their cognitive development. In other words, they're too young to have been socialized, and they already exhibit those toy preferences. I could, I'll just give you one more, just because you'll get the point. I could look at little girls who suffer from congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which is an endocrinological disorder that masculinizes the behavior of little girls. Well, little girls who suffer from this disorder have toy preferences that are like that of boys. So bit by bit, I can build this suffocating network of cumulative evidence around you. I don't need to use hysteria. I don't need to scream above you. I don't need to get all, you know, emotionally labile. I just have to present to you the data. And now the problem with that is, is it takes a lot of discipline to build that network, right? And it also does, it also takes something else. It takes epistemic humility. If you were to ask me, hey, uh, Professor Saad, what's your position on the legalization of marijuana? My answer would be, you know what, Glenn? I haven't built the nomological network to be able to satisfactorily answer you that question. Mm -hmm. So in other words, when I know something, I speak with the full swagger of someone who knows something. When I don't know something, I say, you know what? I don't know enough about this. In other words, I don't let hysteria, I don't let my affective system drive my positions. I just let the evidence speak. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. Now, how do you, how do, you do that in, you know, two months? <laughs> I feel like the West, if America falls, the world yeah. is in real trouble. Um, the West will fall and yep. the West is a uh, there was a there's a great book. Somebody tried to finish um, Winston Churchill's book on the English speaking peoples. And I read it, I don't know, 15 years ago. And it ended with it. It, it foretold the ending of the West, that it was under attack and it was being subverted from within. And it said only after it falls will the world realize how benevolent how good how caring and uh and how uh charitable that system really was and the world will mourn uh, and, and let, go let ahead. me let me if i may just add to what you just said and if go to an immigrant who has seen what the rest of the world has to offer yeah to exactly speak to your point, right? Yes. The, the, the Westerners who live in the West think that this is the default value, right? That the world is replete with this these types of societies. No, the West is a in a little bleep of an of an anomaly, yeah. right? The, the trajectory of human history is not peppered with West. It's peppered with tribal politics, with hatred, with superstition with collectivism over individual dignity. And so for someone like me, Glenn, who escaped all that garbage to come to the West, I, in the book, I talk about you know, two great wars that I faced. The first war was the Lebanese civil war from which we escaped. The second war is the war on reason that I've been seeing on university campuses mm -hmm. as a professor. And it breaks my heart because we are self-imploding. There was no reason for us to do this, but we are committing self-suicide, or I mean suicide. So, so, um, <laughs> if, if, well, you do have a platform to where you can speak to people and people who understand and know that there is truth, 
um, and even knows that they are not the final arbiter of that truth, but they can see they still have some common sense. Uh, they still remember what truths were self-evident um, and they want to wake people up, but they've tried everything. They don't know what to do. What do you do? How do you reverse this? I mean, how yeah, do you so, make an impact so we don't lose? I mean, I know it's going to take decades, but how do we how do we hang on to what we have? Yeah. So in, in, in the last chapter of the Parasitic Mind, it's, it's a call to action chapter. One of the calls to action is activate your inner honey badger. Now, let me explain that term. A honey badger for your viewers, those who don't know, is an extraordinarily ferocious animal. It is the size of a small dog, but it can withstand an attack from six adult lions. The, the, the lions will approach it trying to investigate and it starts acting completely berserk that they're actually intimidated and they retreat. Well, I argue that we have to be ideological honey badgers, meaning what? If you have a set of principles that you can truly reason you could explain those first principles, be a honey badger. And that's if, I mean, you follow me on social media, we've known each other for a few mm -hmm. years. I never back down. If you come after me, I come after you 10 times harder. I'm relentless. If you- Isn't that Donald doctor, Trump though? Isn't right, that but Donald that's Trump? exactly it. Yeah. And by the way, that's why I respect him, right? So it's not that I love everything about him, but I respect a leader who says, hey, listen, if you come after me, you better come correct. I respect that a lot more than a castrato, right? I respect that a lot more because the world is shaped by brazen people, by courageous people. In the same way that we choose Navy SEALs because of their physical bravery and courage, we should be choosing academics who have intellectual Navy SEAL qualities. Instead, most academics and thinkers are cowardly, are meek, are politically correct, and it's only a few of us who have the temerity to speak out. So to answer your question, each of us, however big or small our platform is, should be engaged in the battle. If someone posts something on Facebook that is insane, challenge them politely. If you're at a pub and someone says something that you find objectionable, engage a debate. But what they do, what they do instead is they say, I don't want to lose their friendship. I don't want them to judge me. So there's always an excuse for why they subcontract the battle of ideas to others. Let Gat Sad worry about that. I've got to be friends with this guy. No, no, no. Don't subcontract it to me. You have a voice use it before you lose it how do you i i've said courage is contagious when you yeah. see someone else stand up and risk um and i'm i'm seeing people you are one you're standing up you've taken the hits you've hurt yourself financially and, and every other oh, way yeah. um but you've done it and when people see that they say, well, maybe I can do more. Yeah. Maybe I can. Is, is that the only way to encourage courage? I mean, yeah, I mean, you're leading by example, right? I, just yesterday, I received an email from a professor, I think it was in Southern California, who said, I've been following you for a while, Professor Saad, and you finally got to me. I decided to do X, Y, Z. And you can't imagine the sense of fulfillment that I get from that. Mm -hmm. I mean, not from narcissistic reasons, mm -hmm. but because I see the tangible benefits that my engagement offers 
people, right? So it might start off by you watching me and then you get the courage, but then don't stop. Keep speaking, keep talking. Think about the, look, I'm, I'm friends with um, the wife of Raif Badawi. I don't know if you know who that is. This is the Saudi blogger who has now been languishing in a Saudi prison for six, seven years mm. because he dared say some rather innocuous things about the Saudi government. But now imagine how much courage he had. He was criticizing the Saudi government while living in Saudi Arabia, right? So then imagine when someone exhibits that kind of courage and then I receive an email from someone who's at Wellesley College, but they're boo-hoo-hoo so afraid to speak out. I mean, imagine the level of cowardice you might have when you are so pampered at Wellesley College that you're afraid to speak while they are heroes in the Middle East knowing that if they speak, they're gonna be killed and yet they speak. So follow those honey badgers. Gad, it is always great to talk to you. Uh, you're Thanks. one of my favorite people and favorite thinkers. Um, thank you so much. The name of the book is The Parasitic Mind. Uh, the author is Gad Sad. Thanks, Gad. Thank you, Glenn. So good to be with you. Cheers. Just a reminder, I'd love you to rate and subscribe to the podcast and pass this on to a friend so it can be discovered by other people. 